a woman couldn't be a free agent in biblical times. You you were either someone's daughter or you were someone's wife or you were a prostitute. You know, those were your options. We still see some relics that are very harmful to to families, to women. Why are we holding on to that? If we've been able to let go of a lot of patriarchal aspects of the world, why are we holding on to these certain pieces within Judaism? What would happen if we let go of them? This is On Wandering, a podcast that explores the tricky questions of Jewish identity. I'm Clarissa Marks. It's Women's History Month in the U.S., and it's almost Passover, a time for reflecting on liberation and justice for many Jews. So I thought this would be a good time to share a conversation I had back in the spring of 2020 with Rabbi Johanna Kinberg. I grew up attending a fairly progressive synagogue with gender-neutral prayer books, so it's been hard to put my finger on the feeling of gender inequality in Judaism as a religion and Jewish culture. So what I love about Rabbi Kinberg's approach is that she recognizes gender inequality can be both explicit and implicit. She's involved with several Jewish social justice organizations, including Faith Action Network, Hadassah, and Women's Torah Project. And in the early 2000s, Rabbi Kinberg had to act as a whistleblower in a sexual abuse case involving a clergy member. So content warning, there will be some discussion of that case. We talked about her experience as a whistleblower and about leading tough conversations on gender equality and justice within the larger Jewish community. I hope this interview brings you inspiration and maybe start some of those conversations within your circle. So I wanted to start by talking about some basics for talking about the patriarchy, Um, just in case we have some listeners who are less familiar with what that term means. How would you describe what the patriarchy is? It's a system that gives privilege to males in the economic Um, home, religious, spiritual, intellectual spheres of life, meaning that, you know, there's, we have men and women and and people who are not identifying as either. And we also have a system that will consistently privilege men, one group over others. It has been going on for a very, very long time. And even though we've developed as a civilization in many ways, the the strictures of patriarchy still function to really hurt women and LGBTQ people in our society. So you can say just in terms of an anthropological point of view, it's a, it's the patriarchy is a system where wealth, identity is inherited through the paternal side, but it's much more than that. It's really about a system that's fundamentally not just. Mm-hmm. When did you first realize there was a gender disparity in the Jewish community? 
Well, growing up, my dad was a rabbi, but I grew up in a very egalitarian household and where my mother was a very active feminist. And so she was really bringing a lot of feminist consciousness into my life starting at a young age. So we would have goddess figurines in our home that were, you know, symbolic of the divine feminine because my mother felt that there was enough of the divine masculine um, brought into our household through traditional Judaism. Um, And also being exposed growing up in Eugene, Oregon to Wicca and to celebrating the seasons and the solstices and doing that in communities of women just because those were my friends' moms who were involved in that and my mom had friends. And so I grew up in a really strong community of women who had a spiritual and political consciousness. And so I it was in the water. Like I just grew up, it was organic. I say I'm HBB, hippie by birth. Like that's what I grew up in. And I also grew up with a traditional Judaism where we kept kosher and we kept Shabbat and we went to services. And so I think I really, I didn't even necessarily know that there was a lot of gender differences until we went to Israel mm-hmm. when I was thir- around 13, right after my bat mitzvah. And my grandfather died, and we went through the whole burial and mourning process in Orthodox framework, a Sephardic Orthodox framework. And I just, for the first time, sort of realized that now as a bat mitzvah, my status was radically different than I'd ever experienced in my life. And just saw that there was there was a whole other system of Judaism that I was about to learn a lot about. Mm, in an Orthodox setting. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And this was my mother's side of the family, but she had moved to the United States as a you know, as a in her early twenties. And so she was not living in that context anymore in Israel. So when you talk about having a different setting of Judaism expressing the patriarchy differently, that makes me think of the question, well, is Judaism inherently a patriarchy? And a big part of Judaism goes back to the texts and the literature that we have. So what are some of the ways that you see Jewish texts supporting the idea of a patriarchy? I mean, I see Judaism definitely is a patriarchal religion, and it also has elements within it that have, I think, allow it to outlive systems that no longer serve to function it. So I'd say both of those things are true for me, and that we are now sort of coming to a greater consciousness, just like we did with issues like slavery and really, really extreme um, laws around separating us from other parts of the community or non-Jews. We are now coming to another consciousness about how to live, which hopefully is post-patriarchal. So I have confidence. I feel very confident and live that way that we Judaism can transcend patriarchy. But before you can do that, you have to acknowledge what it is and where it is and how it functions. And Judaism inherently, the rabbinic Judaism, post-biblical Judaism, really established a very firm patriarchy in terms of men, males do this, dress this way, look this way, talk this way, study this way, this is how they live, and this is how females live. And while the Talmud does acknowledge that there's seven different gender expressions in the world— I mean, that's something that they observed. But at the end of the day, you're going to choose one or the other, and you're going to like get married and have kids and do this this whole system. Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter, you know. So they can observe what a lot of a multiplicity of of identities, and yet I think, and I think this for me is the most important example. It's that the tradition doesn't move forward and saying let's celebrate all these. It says, and this is what you do, and that there's a 
a law in the Talmud that says that if your wife doesn't get pregnant after 10 years, you're required to divorce her so that you can fulfill the commandment of be fruitful and multiply. So if the first mitzvah, the first commandment within rabbinic Judaism is be fruitful and multiply, in the past, before we had the kind of biological technologies we have now, that meant you're going to get married and have kids, and you're going to fulfill your your gender role that you were put on this planet to do. Now we're moving forward, and the Jewish community is very comfortable, I believe the majority of the world Jewish community, with people having different gender expressions and different expressions of sexuality and not being in these boxes. And a lot of people do choose to be fruitful and multiply and want to have Jewish families and bring Jewish children into this world, and that's really beautiful too. So I'm glad that we can actually we can actually see ourselves transcending that and saying, like, yes, we do love babies, and we love anybody who brings a baby to the community. And that's that's just wonderful to see. Like Judaism is stronger than patriarchy. Yes. So what are some of the texts, because I'm less familiar with them, sure. that do say specifically this is what it means to be a man. This is what right. it means to be a woman. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, you know, in, in the creation story in Genesis, we have this first creation story, which is the very linear on the first day this happened and the second day. And then you get down to the day where human beings are created and it says, God created them, man and woman, as those in one breath. And so there's some rabbinic commentary that says that the first human was a hermaphrodite or had was a being with both that embodied both genders. And one being. And there's a second story of creation, which goes into the Adam and Eve story, that Adam was alone, he was the only person, and God took Adam's rib and created Eve from Adam. And then they live in the Garden of Eden, then Eve is the one who lures Adam to be eating from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And then they both eat from this tree and look and, oh, they're naked and they're shameful. And she caused that. And now, and then it says, and you will toil in childbirth and you will have a painful childbirth. And you know why? It's because you were the one who who got everybody kicked out of the Garden of Eden. And then it, it moves forward. But that concept of Eve's role in the formation of humanity can be read as very negative and placing her in an inferior status or something being fundamentally different about her nature than Adam the male. But you can also read it another way, which is that she opened up humanity to choice and free will. And, you know, by eating from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, they were then able to leave the garden and make choices about how to live in this world, which was a full expression of humanity is to have free will. Which is why when women's free will is taken away, we're put in a subhuman status. And so that's, and, and that feels to go back to maybe a fundamental injustice and in the interpretation of the text. As Judaism progresses in the Torah, it's, there's, there's actually not as much gender distinction as one would think. There is sort of in a very fundamental tribal way, which would probably be true of any tribe at that time in that area. But in terms of the laws, they're not as extreme in terms of breaking up the lives of men and women as the rabbinic era. Oh, really? Yeah, the rabbinic, yeah, because in the, in the Torah times, everybody becomes impure. So if a man has a seminal omission at night or has sex, he is required to go and cleanse himself before he can touch anything or do anything. And the same thing for women when they're menstruating or after they have a baby. And so both parties <laughs> involved in humanity become impure and have to cleanse, them, cleanse themselves to get into proper relationship with the community, with God, with themselves. It's a cleansing process. 
you know, would be immersion and transcending these different states of being. But in rabbinic Judaism, and I was just studying this in Dafyomi in the daily Talmud study I'm doing in Brachot, it makes it very clear that men no longer have to engage in that cycle of purity and impurity, okay. only women. So before the Talmud was written, when we had the Torah, which is before, mostly before the, oh gosh, I'm forgetting the word, the diaspora out of Israel, right. the ex- being expelled from Israel, we relied heavily on the Torah, which was a little bit, it sounds like it was, it had more equality in the way that it talked about the roles for men and women and what men and women had to do to be pure yes. or, or experience the divine. But then after the Jews left Israel during like the Babylonian period, when the Talmud was created, these rules became more codified and set, and enhanced the patriarchy? Well, I would say that, it, so there's the writing of the Torah and all the rules, and it's hard, you know, and then as the story tells us in the Torah, as they gathered these rules, and then they went and inhabited the land. And we don't really know if they ever practiced it exactly as it's written in the Torah. So we don't, you know, in terms because they didn't document their actual practicing of a lot of this stuff. What we do know is that the Torah, in terms of purity and impurity of the physical body, is egalitarian in terms of both men and women can become pure and impure. And that hasn't changed in Judaism, I mean, in the Torah since that time. And what we also know <laughs> is that by the time is that is that rabbinic law makes it so that men no longer have to participate in that cycle. And a lot of what rabbinic Judaism looks like today is around women going to the mikvah, being impure. There's a lot of the religious tradition around women's bodies and impurity and purity. And so we just see that that, that shift. And some would say, well, that's because they were part of a larger patriarchal culture. So it's not necessarily that Judaism is inherently inherently patriarchal, but the world around them is. Therefore, it becomes part of the culture. And that's what's hard to ascertain. What I do know now is that today in Orthodox communities, a woman cannot divorce a man. So that is, and that in biblical times, marriage was a financial transaction, and that she was bound to that man, and that a woman couldn't be a free agent in biblical times. You you were either someone's daughter, or you were someone's wife, or you were a prostitute. You know, those were your options in terms of how you could be. And today that's changed, but we still see some relics that are very harmful to, to families, to women. And so the question is, why are we holding on to that? If we've been able to let go of a lot of patriarchal aspects of the world, why are we holding on to these certain pieces within Judaism? What would happen if we let go of them? And I want to have deeper conversations with people who are still upholding them about why, what's so important about gender and having a split and a, such a stark distinction within gender that makes what, why is that so important to Judaism? Right. So, what are some of the ways that you see patriarchy having a negative effect in the Jewish community right now? What are some of the things that we're upholding that are harmful? Absolutely. Well, as I was just mentioning, um, women not being able to divorce men and being kept in legally a marriage that where where you're bound to this person, even if you're not living together, you're, you still can't marry someone else. You still can't have a, le- a legal divorce. That just seems so unfair and unkind at this at this point in the course of human civilization. I also think about my own experience of knowing 
in community so many LGBTQ people and also trans people and people who are non-binary. And I think, well, that array of human expression has to also exist in the Orthodox community. Like, I can't, I just can't believe that that beautiful array of humanity isn't reflected there too. And so what does that mean? What I see is that people feel that they can't be themselves. They feel oppressed. They feel that they have to hide. They feel like they have to harm themselves or hurt themselves because they're not accepted. And that deeply disturbs me. It just deeply disturbs me to know that they could be living in another way where they're accepted and where they're invited to fulfill all the commandments, you know, and be a full part of the community in the way that's right for them. So that, I mean, that's another piece. And then I would say just, you know, in terms of Israel and the fact that we have so many people around the world who are liberal Jews who want to have full access to sites and to religious experiences. And Israelis also would probably like to have full access to all the forms of Judaism that exist in this world. But because Israel's religious courts are, according to Orthodox law, anything that has to do with birth, marriage, divorce, adoption, and inheritance has to go through the religious court. So even to this day, if you want to have an abortion in Israel, you're still supposed to go to before a tribunal of three Orthodox oh male rabbis to get to get permission to do that. And I mean, and that's the reality of living with a, a patriarchal structure that is also in the legal system. It's not even there. It's not even in the just the the family system. And in the United States, probably the year I was born, I think women still couldn't get a credit card on their own in a department store because of property rights and issues and trust issues around women. So we, we are moving forward and you can see, I mean, this is, it's so different than what I would even have imagined 2020 in terms of what's, you know, what's moving in our world around gender. And it's really amazing. And I want Judaism to move along with it. And I also, I especially don't want it to become a, a force then that tries to protect the patriarchy and harm other people. Right. Yeah. So I wanted to ask about how you've seen the spoken and unspoken support of the patriarchy. When you talked about in Israel, you know, there's very specific laws. There's a court you have to go to if you want an abortion or a divorce. It, that's very, it's a transparent form of supporting the patriarchy. But then I also feel like even in some maybe more progressive spaces of Judaism, there's an kind of an unspoken support of the patriarchy. I know I don't go to services very often at all, but when I do go, even I go to the most progressive hippy dippy services I can, and I still feel the sense of, well, I don't want to wear a kippa because that feels like a man's clothing, mm-hmm. you know, or I don't know if I feel comfortable wearing a talus or, the, you know, there's certain prayers where we're we're talking about father figures right. that make it hard for me to feel like I can embrace Judaism, even right. in, the, in it, even when everyone around me feels like they want it to be very gender inclusive. Yeah, I mean it's it's interesting because from when I lead, I try to lead from a post patriarchal place, which means just like with the God language when it was changed to be more um gender neutral to tr- really try to make those changes but it is it's really really challenging because the patriarchy is so looming 
So when we, you know, when we talk about patriarchs and matriarchs, I mean, people will ask me, well, why do you always say the patriarchs first? Like, like, <laughs> and it's like, you're right. I mean, yeah. that we really have to be willing to do a deep dive to think about what, where are the places where we're reinforcing patriarchy and not everybody has done that work. And, and that can be very problematic because I have also people who come who who want a post-patriarchal experience, but so much of the structures are the same, even if they have nothing to do with patriarchy. And so just walking into the building can be, you know, it feels like that is a male space. And you know what? It probably is in its design and all the things, you know, that if it was, if it was, if it came from a tradition where men and women had been doing spiritual architecture together for 200 years, it, it will feel very different because that's the direction we're moving in. But I, I can completely understand why, you know, when you're living a primarily sort of, you're creating a life for yourself that doesn't include a lot of patriarchy, that, you know, most of the Abrahamic, again, you know, systems are going to feel very, very patriarchal walking in. Mm -hmm. And so we just have to, I think this is a time and a place where representation matters, as it always does. Because when anytime you're doing something in the synagogue or around religious life, to have a lot of representation of voices there to help build, you know, and we're constantly building Judaism. So it's going to happen. But for example, there was a story just last week about the conservative movement where they had a list of the top like 15 or 10 most innovative rabbis and they didn't include a single female mm, wow. or non-binary. And so they were called out, right. obviously, right. and they apologized. But how they could have gotten there. Like, I'm not, I mean, I'm more concerned about how did you get to this decision? Because that's where the problem is, is everything that led up to that decision meant that you did not have appropriate representation in your decision-making. And so you need to make a real effort to have decision-making bodies that represent lots of different types of talent in our world and lots of expressions of humanity. And so that's where the changes need to happen. And, and someone asked me recently, well, how, you know, how can I as a, a, a Jewish leader make a difference? And it is some of the things that I've lear learned from watching women in the tech world where saying, I will not be on a panel um, if there isn't this much representation and I'm not going to participate in this and withhold yourself and your talent <laughs> don't <laughs> and make demands to see the culture change because that's that's how it's going to change and it's happening but it, it's happening slowly I would say I would love for synagogues to privilege and give voice to people who don't feel comfortable because if everybody are the ones who are feeling comfortable are the ones making decisions then it's a self-perpetuating situation we had conversations last year about disassembling our sisterhood because we were wondering, does that language still speak to, to people? You know, do we want to just be doing things all together or do we want to be doing things, you know, divided by gender and what does sisterhood mean? And there's still a lot of conversation going on about that. Like we're undecided. I think that there's a need, there's a desire within the community for women to gather. There's a desire for queer people to gather. There's a desire sometimes for people who identify as male to gather, but everybody seems sort of unsure about what's the, the proper way to go now because the old structures just don't seem to fit. So in addition to that, when we're talking about the existing structures of Jewish institutions, you've been an advocate for increasing awareness 
of sexual misconduct by clergy members, which is one of the biggest and maybe most harmful barriers to women feeling comfortable in traditional Jewish institutions. Have you seen examples where rabbis or Jewish institutions have used Jewish patriarchal tradition to defend sexual misconduct? I mean, I've when I first started speaking out on these issues, that some of the pushback from the community, and this was before 2014, was the argument of not gossiping. Oh. of Lashon Hara, okay. sort of bringing to me the the rabbinic and biblical injunction and something that's very strong within Judaism about not gossiping, not spreading untruths, not spreading lies. And so that was the first big hurdle was I was being told that I was a gossip by sharing information or, and trying to see some movement on a situation that I felt was very dangerous for people in our community, that there was a predator. And it, it was very, very painful to be told that and sort of be castigated in that way. And I had to sort of do my own deep dive of r- Jewish text and also you know, bring up the injunction that we should truly rebuke people in our community who are doing things that could harm other people and also overall harm the community. And that there's a way to rebuke, but sometimes that way to rebuke does end up having to be public because that's the last line of accountability. And in my own story of wanting to you know, help people be safer in our community and call out the misconduct of someone, I started out by trying to do it very quietly. And in doing it quietly, when things happen quietly, I was quietly told, you're not the right person to do this. This isn't the right time. This isn't the right way. And I tried lots of different avenues of quietly trying to have this problem addressed, was told, you're gossiping, you have no evidence, and why didn't any of these people go to the police? Again, before 2014. So... I was really navigating this in the dark Mm. about I hadn't heard all the stories of a lot of other people. This was not reported on widely. In 2014, what was significant Um, about that That was the beginning of the Me Too movement. Okay. So that's when it's really started. That's when hashtag Me Too sort of became a something. And we started talking about this. This was right like months before that, unfortunately. Because if it happened now, I would really know what to do. Mm. But back then, I did not. And so I went to... People I trusted who had positions of authority within the religious framework I was working in, and they, you know, and tried to do it quietly, and then had to get louder and louder and louder and louder until I was a named source in an article in the Jewish Daily Forward, which for in the Jewish world to be part of a national press is about as loud as you can get. And I was just, I was shocked by how loud I had to get to be heard. I thought, well, I'm a female rabbi and I went to rabbinical school and I'm, you know, at that time was the senior rabbi of a congregation and part of a rabbinical organization. Like, why isn't anybody listening to me? And then what I realized, as many of us came to realize, is that a lot of these institutions were keeping a lot of secrets for a really long time, um, protecting their own. And yes, I think all institutions that are primarily male-led do function to protect their own. And so while this particular person had been expelled from the rabbinical movement, what the rabbinical movement didn't do was go to the community and warn them that this person was coming. And so you can't take someone's title of rabbi away 
so they can just hang up a shingle and be a rabbi and continue to serve people. And unless you do that proactive move of send a letter to every Jewish organization saying this person has been expelled and this is what they did, they're just going to keep on perpetrating in the community. And that's exactly what was happening. So they would just find another community that didn't know what happened and set up shop there as their rabbi. Absolutely. Okay. Unfortunately, there were people in this community who did know what happened and who didn't say anything. And he was perpetrating. And one of his victims came directly to me. And so I couldn't be quiet. And so that's when I had to start getting really loud. And there was fallout for my behavior, you know, that that was, I was at that time, you know, the loud, screaming, vindictive, angry, out of control feminist who had to take it to the most extreme place. I did have to take it to the most extreme place because we know now most people don't report to police. If any of these people who spoke to me directly about their experience had reported, it would have blown up their whole lives, you know, and so... And I was not one of his victims. So I felt that because I was not in that position, that I should speak out. But it did have consequences for my life and for my career. And that's, I mean, that's something that I'm okay with living with because there's someone who's, they're not out there using the same title that I have, hurting people. And, but that, the, the patriarchal aspect of that was, we weren't doing our jobs and we want to cover up that we weren't doing our jobs appropriately. But they have now changed. And, the, and this particular movement did pass a rule that says if someone was expelled and they moved to another community that they, they will, should not be hired by another congregation within the movement and that they will inform the rest of the community about. So this is, so there, so changes have happened in the rules since then, again, since the beginning of, you know, since 2014. So after 2014, does that mean, is it just the reconstruction movement? That you're well, this was in the reform movement. Oh, the reform all movement. this was in the reform movement. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. No. And I mean, I think all the rabbinic movements have had to deal with stuff. Okay. Orthodox, Reform, Reconstructionist, Renewal, all of them since 2014 have had to deal with major issues around ethics violations and how do you address rabbis who who abuse. And, you know, being a second-generation rabbi and my husband being a rabbi, I'm very concerned, probably more than most, about rabbis abusing their power and hurting people. Because that's the most dangerous part about walking into a Jewish institution right now, is say, is that while some of the things might feel uncomfortable, I would say overall that the rabbi's role is still very powerful. And so, you know, there's, there, if you're in a room alone with a rabbi, they do something that's uncomfortable for you, you might not feel like, who do I go to? What do I say? And we just don't talk about that enough. And while there, we don't have probably the same levels of abuse as the Catholic Church, all the religious groups of this world have a problem when it's primarily run by men, and as does the Jewish world. So that brings me to kind of my next question. If we're in a Jewish community that aims to disassemble the patriarchy and make a safer world for folks of all genders, what's our responsibility and how do we approach working with other Jewish communities that seem to be upholding the patriarchy or parts of the patriarchy that feel harmful. 
Absolutely. I mean, that's one of my greatest challenges is that, you know, I want the Jewish world to be as one and to, you know, to be, feel a sense of responsibility for each other and have a relationship with each other. And it's very difficult when you have these two systems that are sort of exclude each other. They don't, it's very, very hard. So on one hand, I believe that representation matters. So I should be present and visible and interacting. On the other hand, I don't ever want to put myself or ask others to be in a situation that diminishes their dignity. Nor would I want that of, of people from the Orthodox community either. You Can know? you talk a little bit more about what what does that mean Diminishes their dignity. Mm-hmm. Well, I would say where you don't feel like you can be your full personhood. So for, I mean, one of the examples for my own life is going into a situation with my husband, we're both rabbis, where I know I would never be asked to make kiddish to say the blessing over the wine because women aren't supposed to do that for men within the Orthodox Jewish legal framework. So I, and even though it might not come up, because obviously they're not going to ask me, I know that my status is different and that that feels hard and problematic for me within my own sort of family and community. It's one thing if I'm going into another community and making a choice to say, like, I'm going to go to a mosque and I'm going to cover my hair because I'm choosing to step into this framework and be a guest as opposed to part of my own family. And what does that mean? And does that if there was sort of an equation like, well, I'm going to give up a little bit of me and you give up a little bit of you, that's, that's even hard to, to even have that conversation. But I do find that more and more for myself, those experiences do feel like, oh, that diminishes me. And then I imagine for myself that how that must feel. I think about people who are queer, who might not feel that they can even talk about their partner or their children or a transition they're going through or anything because they feel that that might not be accepted or their status might be seen as different in the community. So, I, you know, there's a sense of, it's not just for me, it's, it's really about bringing others with me in this journey because I'm just at the forefront of being born the, the year that the first woman was ordained in 1972. I've been sort of at the beginning of this and then after then LGBTQ people were ordained and now trans people are being ordained. And so in future generations, there'll be greater representation. And I think that that might increase the challenge of these groups coming together. But I think also with the multiplicity of different identities, that'll be a good challenge. Mm-hmm. You know, it'll be a good challenge for the Jewish community because we'll have to face each other and honor each other and acknowledge each other. Yeah. So I wanted to ask more about your experience working in Jewish spaces with more conservative communities. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you mentioned you would go into a mosque and cover your hair because you're in a, you're a guest in that community and it feels appropriate. Although it's really hard for me. Okay. (laughs) I do it. Okay. (laughs) I do it, but it's really hard for me. Mm -hmm. And I prefer to work with the Muslim community, like at Maps and Redmond, where I don't have to cover my hair. I see. Um, But I will do it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, because there's some mosques where you don't have to cover your hair. and And so that's my preference is, but again, if, there have been times because right across the street from my congregation is a Shia mosque. And I don't want to like not do stuff with this whole Muslim community that's right across the street because I won't cover my hair. Right. So I will cover my hair. But when I'm in the room and all the women's hair is covered and none of the men have their hair covered or in the same way, and it's just so stark, it's like, okay, I am in the patriarchy and I just stepped into a space that's not where I live all the time. But 
I know how to do it well, you know, because I'm the child of a first-generation American from Morocco who, I mean, I know how to roll over and show my belly. Like, you know, I know how to step into the patriarchal form and be the Rebbitzin mm-hmm. and, you know, and, and, you know, it's the wife what, of a rabbi, the wife of a rabbi. rabbi. That's yeah. why I'm holding on to my dignity in some, because it's just so easy for me to let go of it right. that I feel like, no, now that I'm like older, I'm like, wait a second, what does that do to you long-term mm. when you walk in the room and, and sort of give away your dignity? And I, and I think about my mom because she grew up in Morocco Super bright. I mean, so bright. Such a smart woman. Spoke like seven different languages, but didn't have the same kind of educational opportunities that I had. And she, I know that she wanted to be a rabbi. But what she did is she worked while she put my father through rabbinical school. And then she took care of my kids while I went to rabbinical school. And then she took care of my kids while I was working as a rabbi. And I think about, you know, just that I was born into this world where my parents were delight. I mean, dream come true that I decided to become a rabbi. And, you know, that that was, and I had all this support and just so many people cheering me on and that she didn't have that. And I guess, I, I mean, I can't go back and create that for her, but I can cheer other people on. I can sort of pa- pass it forward. Right. Yeah. That's something that you brought up the last time I saw you speak. It's interesting working with more conservative Jewish communities Because you have to think about, one, what are my actions going to do to my sense of self and dignity is doing something like holding back and not saying kiddish or covering my hair. Yeah, sitting behind a mechitza. Sure, sitting separately from the men. What is that? How does that make me feel small? But then you're also thinking about, well, I know there's other people in this community who are being affected by this. I know there's that the women might be harmed in some way if this is something that they experience on a regular basis, or there's probably queer people who don't feel comfortable speaking up or being themselves in this community. So how do you balance the desire to be in that space and make a difference with respecting that community and then also what you need for yourself to feel healthy. Well, I think because I've been outspoken about issues around the patriarchy, I'm less and less invited into those Orthodox spaces. Um, That's hard. Yeah. Yeah. Because I have spoken up about certain things and that's become difficult is that I don't, I mean, when you're outspoken and you have the title rabbi, then you become sort of like a figure and, you know, that someone who speaks out on these issues. So I was quoted in Jewish in Seattle last summer in an article about Chabad. And I was, I mean, no liberal rabbis ever want to say anything negative about Chabad. Why? I think because they are the most sort of open to liberal Jews of all the Orthodox groups. And so we interact with them a lot. Mm -hmm. And because they are often nice, loving, welcoming, generous, beautiful people. Having said that, they also are still within the laws of, of the bounds of Jewish law. And so one of the things that I experience 
in my career is that they're very open and welcoming to people up until a certain point. And then if that person wants to get married or have a baby naming or commit suicide or anything that has to do with the same things that that the Jewish legal system in Israel, the Orthodox, has to do with birth, death, marriage, adoption, then it's like, no, and you hit a wall. Mm. And then they get bounced back to the liberal community. First of all, we know that we're not like their first choice, that they actually sort of saw Chabad as being more authentic, more Jewish than what we do, but they get bounced to us when when Chabad, you know, draws a line and says, we'll no longer, we don't recognize you. Mm. So that's, they, they might invite a gay couple to a Shabbat dinner, but they're not going to do a baby naming for their child. Oh, okay. So, and so that's, that's sort of where the, there becomes tension because we are working with people who are sort of bouncing back and forth from both communities and people wow. who specifically might've been rejected by that community. And then okay. it becomes our pastoral issue that, that they've been rejected when they thought that they were going to be welcomed and embraced. So you've actually seen or worked with folks who are trying to find their way between more liberal and more orthodox communities. All the time. Yeah. That's so hard. Yeah. Uh, very, very often. Yeah. And that's that becomes a challenge because the, they are very welcoming and they do present this very, very beautiful form of Judaism. And I wish in some ways that I, you know, that my job was to make Shabbat dinner and invite people over. I would love to do that. But I also am a rabbi, and I have these services to lead and sermons to right. write. And so <laughs> there's a tension there in terms of what Chabad offers, which is a rabbi and a rabbitson mm-hmm. and a home. Mm-hmm. And that's something that's very appealing. And it's something that my husband and I could do. But again, it's based on there being someone who stays home and cooks and clean and someone who works. And we've actually both are rabbis and we both work. And, you know, we almost never have people over for Shabbat because we're always working. That's just not part of our lives anymore. Right. And those, that's just a different, I'm not, I think that there should be lots of people inviting people over, but my, the way my career has taken me is a place where I really see that it can, that people bouncing back between Orthodox and liberal Judaism, that there's the, because of the patriarchy, because right. of those laws, right. there can be a real pain line, mm-hmm. a really, really painful line that people bump up against. And so I spoke about that in an article in Jewish in Seattle, and it was it's it's very controversial. I wondered too if that's part of what makes folks what people like about more conservative groups. You know, I've heard some folks who've joined. Uh, more liberal synagogues say that they miss some of the structure of a more conservative setting. And sometimes that structure is just the way the prayers are sung. Right. But I wonder if there's also just something comfy about knowing your role in a society. Yes. Well, then that's sort of what I bump up against is then my sort of my next comment is, yes, patriarchy is very comfortable because it, you know, because it tells you it's comfortable until it's not comfortable. Right. Right. It's comfortable if it's comfortable for you. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I'm speaking as someone who got married at 25 and has two kids and has a husband. And I mean, I didn't take his last name. That was, you know, but I, I made all the choices that are within the sort of normative Jewish patriarchy box. But I never for a second have thought about if I, that I don't, I always want to be creating a world where people can make different choices than the choices I made. And I also always want to work on behalf of the people that I love. 
and not just myself. Right. <laughs> so I recognize that what this is my joy, and I'm surrounded by all these other people who have their life, their joy too, and I want to more and more create a Jewish world that includes all of them. And I think that that's happening because so many of the people who are coming to our community and coming to Judaism as new Jews are queer people and trans people. So, and I, you know, I was asking one of my newer um, conversion students who's trans, like, why do you think that is? Because you're like my fifth trans conversion yes. student in a row. Mm-hmm. And they said, because they see that the rabbis are out there fighting for, for the rights of trans people and immigrants and for poor people. And that at least through their lenses of what the Jewish world looks like, what they see is all this activism and all this tikkun olam and that they're, they're drawn to that. They want to be part of something that's rooted, at least from what this person, this one individual expressed, something that's ancient and rooted, but also something that's radically progressive in terms of this almost messianic vision of the world that we're that we're reaching for. And I was like, oh, good. I mean, that's I, I'm so glad that that's the lens you see it because I feel like a lot of people within the Jewish community disparage what they would call tikkun olam Jews and Jews who are just like, who are very focused on transforming our world and that that's somehow a lesser form than Judaism. And part of transforming our world is moving beyond patriarchy. And so my pushback for people who are very comfortable with the forms is, what are you willing to give up to be in that comfortable form? Is that because you might feel comfortable sitting on one side of the mechitza, but what about your non-binary friend? Where are they supposed to sit? Mm-hmm. You know, and you might feel comfortable not making kiddish, but what about the person next sitting next to you who is wants to make kiddish, you know, it's just, there's, I mean, it's just about sort of moving beyond yourself and also thinking, what is the patriarchy protecting? What is it? What, it, I mean, why, why do those structures feel so comfortable for people that they're willing to like fight for it and say like, um, you know, we're willing to give up other things, but this, no, we have to keep this, this system of this is what men do. And this is what women do. And never should they depart from that structure. Right. So one of the ways that you ended the talk that I saw at Lemud Seattle was you talked about even though sometimes we cede power to more conservative groups like in Israel where the religious authority that's in charge of different legal decisions is also a very conservative patriarchal authority, overall there are more Jews out there who want to see the gender equality. Yes. And I thought that was that was a very good takeaway, and that felt very empowering. Absolutely, absolutely. I think that that's that's the majority of the Jewish world, and that our world is constantly moving forward and transforming. And you see in the Orthodox world now too that there are people who are opening their eyes to recognize the full humanity in their community and willing to to think about changing for the sake of love and compassion and letting go of things that bind us and keep us away from that. So I feel that confident in in moving forward, it's just that the conversations are hard. You know, they're really, really hard because anything that's about identity can be a hard conversation. And I'm willing to have them. You know, that's, and I hope to have more of them throughout my life. Well, this has been really wonderful. Is there anything else I haven't asked about yet that you'd like to talk about? No, I think I'm good. Oh, great. Thank you (laughs) so much for coming. This was a really lovely conversation. 
Where can people find more about your work if they're interested in what you're up to or what your congregation is um, doing? Just go to Cola Me, NW, colamenorthwest.org. And yeah. Fabulous. This episode was produced by me, Clarissa Marks, with intro music by Ketza and outgoing music by Gilly Cuddy. If you like the show, you can support it by sharing with a friend or by adding a review to Apple Podcasts. You can connect with me on Twitter or Instagram at Clarissa R. Marks. And to hear more episodes, find transcripts, or learn more about the people and media we mentioned, visit our website, onwandering.co. That's onwandering.co. Thanks for listening and see you next time.